Well, you're probably wondering about that four-page term paper you have. Um, so there's a story. So uh, <laughs> every... Huh? Oh, thank you. Uh, don't, please don't read it, because it's what you're about to hear. But uh, every week when I'm in this, especially in this series, uh, I'm, I type out the whole thing, uh, just because if I tried to wing it, it would not go well. And, uh, and so I do that first, and then I, then I type out a separate page of just little high points, and those are the notes that I give you. And I, I send that to Sharon. She prints them out, and she brings them uh, to the Bible study. And I did that. And I, the first time I realized that I'd sent the whole manuscript to Sharon instead of the notes is when I walked in and, and Keith said, boy, this looks like a paper that people turn in in school or something like that. And I thought, and I, I literally looked at him and said, how did you get that? Then I figured it out. And, yeah, yeah, you don't have to listen to me. So you, got, you do what you want with those four pages. If you've got a parakeet at the bottom of their cage, that's be a good spot. But I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. Um, so uh, last time we talked about, this is kind of a two-night two series on can we trust the Bible. Last week it was on, or last time, two weeks ago, it was on whether the Bible we have now is the work of the original authors, whether the books that are in the Bible should be in the Bible. Uh, this time we're going to see, are the words of the Bible actually true? Can we trust the words that are in there? Should we believe them? Uh, so I'm going to start with this. Uh, Chuck Colson, the late Chuck Colson, uh, told a story about 20 years ago uh, about an, a historic event that probably all of us are familiar with, but a story you probably haven't heard. So the historic event is Dunkirk. And those of you that aren't familiar with it or can't remember, uh, this was a place on the English Channel in France where during the early stages of World War II, when the Americans, when we hadn't joined the war, it was just the British and the French and a few other allies, the Allied army was down to its last little, uh, last little moments of life. Uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers stranded on a beach near the English Channel across across the channel from England in safety, and the German army is coming for them. And they, they're running out of weapons, they're running out of ammo, they're running out of food, and it's very close to being the end of the war. And they needed a miracle, and we all know what happened, but what, the part we don't know, and this is the story that Chuck Colson told, a, a, a British officer, and he didn't name the officer, sent a telegram to home, to the British home forces or to the... To, Downing Street or whoever, and it simply said it simply had three three words, but if not. Telegram just said, but if not. And what it was a reference to was Daniel 3.18. So we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And those three young Hebrew boys who were given that choice, bow down before this idolatrous image of King Nebuchadnezzar or be thrown into a fiery furnace. In that great, great moment of incredible faith, those three boys stand before the greatest king in all the world, and they say, if our God wants to, he can save us from your hand, O king. And this is the, this is the exact quote from the King James Version, which is what they had back then. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. But if not, that's all he said, but if not, he just assumed everybody in England had been raised in church, they'd heard that story enough times, they would recognize the reference and know what he was saying. What was he saying? He was saying, 
We are hoping and praying for a miracle. We're hoping that you, our fellow British citizens, will come to our rescue. But if you don't, we're not going to surrender. If you don't, we're going to fight to the last man. If you don't, we're going to do what needs to be done. We're just hoping you'll come through for us. And those words inspired the English. And you know the rest of the story as ordinary Englishmen got into their boats, their fishing boats and their sailboats and their yachts and their tugboats and all kinds of sporting craft and working vessels and, and sailed across the English Channel and braved uh, the, the Luftwaffe strafing them and, and evacuated almost every man of that army and literally saved Western civilization. We don't know who knows what we'd be today without that. The question that Colson asked back then is, and this is 20 years ago, if the same thing happened today and the same message were sent out, would Americans, or British for that matter, recognize those words? But if not, probably not. Probably not even most churchgoers. But the really disturbing question is, would they even recognize the authority of Scripture? And increasingly, the answer to that question is no. Increasingly, the answer is no, our culture today sees the Bible as, at best, a book with some interesting stories and a few inspiring passages, but overall, not the Word of God, not truth, and certainly not something we should base our lives upon. Oh, more and more, we're hearing people say, how can you base your life on that book? It's so outdated. It's, it's, it's a book. That, there's so many other holy, quote-unquote, holy books out there. How can you base your whole life on a book 3,000, 2,000 years old? And this question is important for us. Even people in this room, I'd say most, if not all the people in this room, would say, well, I trust in the Bible. I don't care what anybody else says. But this is still an important question because it changes the way we share our faith. If you're my age or older and you were raised in an evangelical church, you were taught to share your faith by sharing Scripture. You learned the Roman road to salvation, or you learned the four spiritual laws, or you learned one of those other many, uh, many methods where you said, here's what the Bible says about how you can have eternal life. And for much of our lifetimes, that was enough. We could go to someone who maybe didn't go to church much, and we could say, do you want to know what the Bible says about how you can have eternal life? And they'd say, well, yeah, that's pretty important. Why don't you tell me? And there was a pretty good chance they were going to believe what you said and come to know Christ if you just had the boldness to share it. But now, if you come to them with that same information, most Americans today would say, well, that's fine for you, but I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, so you're kind of wasting your time quoting all that to me because I don't believe that it's truth. So where does that leave us? It also tests our faith because I'm sure there are people here, I'm sure there are people listening to this, who are, who are sincere Christians and yet have had moments of doubt where you thought, you know, all my coworkers, all my classmates, all my family, people in my social circle, I'm the only one that believes the Bible is literally, literally true from beginning to end. Could it be that I'm the one that's in the wrong, that they've got it figured out, and I've, I'm the one that doesn't know what he's talking about? So we'll, talk, we'll touch on three questions. First of all, should we take the Bible literally? Secondly, is the Bible outdated? And third, how should we respond to people who reject the Bible's authority? So again, I'm sorry you don't have notes in front of you. That's my fault. Uh, but yeah, you can review it later if you want. So should we take the Bible literally? I read an interesting article online. Uh, a preacher was, a pastor was talking about this question and how people come to him sometimes when they find out what he does for a living. 
And they say, are you, are you one of those people that takes the Bible literally? And what they're really asking is, are you crazy? Are you one of those weirdos? Are you one of those people that believes all these fanciful tales? Are you, are you somebody that has that slim grip on reality? Do you take the Bible literally? And his answer now is, no, I don't take the Bible literally. And he says, you can see them just relax, like, oh, thank God. And then he says, but I believe every word of it is true. And they get a big question mark on their face, like, well, what do you mean? And he explains, well, you can't take every word of the Bible literally First of all, because the Bible's full of figures of speech. When Jesus in John says, uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to come into the kingdom of God, he's not really saying his, his followers need to be cannibals and vampires, right? He's using an expression, a figure of speech. Uh, there's hyperbole when you exaggerate something to make a point. So all the gospel writers, when they're talking about John the Baptist's ministry, they'll say things like, all of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him in the desert. Now, nobody really believes that every single person in southern Israel was out in the desert. That's, John, that's the gospel writer's way of saying John's ministry was very popular. Okay? That's, that's a hyper, hyperbolic statement. You can't take that literally. Or you look at how different genres of literature are used in the Bible. For instance, we know that the book of Revelation is not straightforward writing. It's what the scholars call apocalyptic writing. Basically, Back then, apocalyptic literature was written in code so you could get around uh, the authorities. And so when John in Revelation says that he looked up at the throne and he saw Jesus, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, he's not saying that the Son of God morphed into a, a baby sheep with blood coming out of its neck. He's saying that Jesus is like a lamb. He offered his life for us. He's using symbolism because that's the kind of literature Revelation is. But on the other hand, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, and Mark says that Jesus was in a boat and a storm was raging, and Jesus stood up and said, peace be still, and suddenly it was still, we know because of the kind of literature Mark is writing, he means us to, to believe that literally happened. It wasn't a symbol, it wasn't a fable, it wasn't a fairy tale, it actually happened. I'll give you another example. Sometimes, and I've had this one thrown at me by people who are skeptics. They'll say, well, the Bible says that rebellious children should be taken out and stoned to death. So how come you Christians don't do that, and yet you choose to hold to other teachings in the Bible? And they're right. It does say that in the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you probably noticed that this year when we were reading through the Bible. Some of you thought, man, how did my teenagers survive? I don't know. I don't know how my kids are adults now. But, um, and, and the answer is, that's part of the law of Moses. That was given by God to Moses at the founding of the people of God, the, the nation of Israel, while they were in the wilderness, uh, going to the promised land. It was sort of like the constitution of a new nation. Here are things we're going to do to make sure our nation is healthy. For one, we're not going to tolerate the breakdown of the, of the nuclear family. We're going to insist that, that children obey their parents and so forth. That was thousands of years ago, and Jesus comes along and says, we're not bound by that law. Paul comes along and says, we're not bound by that law. That, was the, that law was for a particular time, in a particular situation. We're not bound by it. We are led by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit of God. So you have to understand what kind of genre of literature you're reading to understand what it's saying. 2 Timothy 2.15, uh, Paul is writing to his young friend, Timothy, and he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
you got to handle the Word of God correctly. In other words, the Bible is not like other books. Any other book, you take it off the shelf and you read it and you can sit down and write a book report or you can go talk to your friend and say, here's what I got out of the book. And no one can tell you you're wrong. But with the Bible, because it's the Word of God and because it's not written like other books, there is a right and a wrong way to read it. So you can't just read it and say, okay, here's what I got from it. You've got to say, what did that original author mean? What did this mean in context? What, what was he trying to convey to his original readers? Now, how does that apply to me? Now, please hear me. In, in what I just said, I don't want anybody who's hearing me say this to think to themselves, well, I guess that rules me out because I'm just not, reading is not my strong suit. I'm more of a math-based person or I'm more into mechanical things. And so I guess I'll just leave the Bible study to people who have seminary educations or people who are brighter than I am. Please don't think that. Please do not go down that, uh, fall into that trap. My, my grandpa on my mom's side uh, was a dairy farmer. Uh, aside from his term in the army at the end of World War II, he never lived anywhere else but the little unincorporated community where I grew up that had two churches and a school that went up to the eighth grade. My grandpa graduated high school. He went to the 11th grade. That's as far as it went. He never really left, never had any desire to see the world. He, was, he lived what we would consider a very small life, and yet... He lived, he had a kind of character as a man of God that I long for because he had the Bible and he studied it. He didn't have great education. He didn't have great cultural uh, attainment. He had the Word of God. I, I heard someone say once, and I've never forgotten this, the Bible is, is like a, a swimming pool in which on the shallow end, kids can wade without drowning. But on the deep end, elephants can swim without touching the bottom. The Word of God is, is suitable for all of us. So you can study God's Word as long as you do it four ways. In confidence, like I just said, go, come to the Word of God knowing that the most important teachings of Scripture are easy to understand. And you work from there. First time you read the Bible, there's going to be a lot that doesn't make sense. But as you keep on reading, you will see the thing, you'll see the, the things that are most important and they will affirm you and they'll change your life. And then you read it again and you'll start to see new things. And the more you read it, the more you learn and you never get to the end of it. Read it in confidence that God's going to make clear to you what you need to know. Read it in context. In other words, you can't just pull a scripture out and attach it to some area of your life and make it mean what you want it to mean. Some people love to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you just hear that verse, you think, oh, well, the Bible teaches that I can do whatever I want to do. Well, I don't like math, so I'm not going to study from my math test. And I'm going to wake up that morning and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I'm going to pass that test. I wouldn't suggest that. That's not what that scripture says. I'm going to jump off a roof and say, I can do all things through Christ and splat, right? It's not going to work. You have to read it in context. In Philippians 4, Paul's talking about how he's in prison and he knows his friends in Philippi are worried about him, but he says, don't worry about me. I'm happy. I have learned to be content whether I am hungry or full, whether I'm sick or healthy, whether I'm free or imprisoned. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's speaking about contentment. You have to read Scripture in context. Otherwise, you get into all kinds of trouble. Third, read it in community. I've been talking about this a lot lately, how God did not mean for the Christian life to be lived as a solo endeavor. 
We are meant to walk together. That's why the church exists. Uh, And so when you read God's Word, yes, you can read it for yourself, but share what you're learning with others. This is why it's so important to be part of a small group where you can, you can discuss God's Word together as you study it together, but you can also say, y'all are studying, y'all may be studying the Psalms one week, and you may come in and say, I read this in the book of John. Do you, what do you think about that? And here's a hint. If everyone you know who's a believer in Jesus interprets the Scripture differently than you, that ought to at least give you pause. I mean, yeah. Once or twice in church history, there's a person who comes along and says, you know, I read this completely differently and it changes history. People like Martin Luther, you know. I don't think you're one of those. I really don't. I'm sorry. I hope you're not offended. But you should at least step back and say, well, I may be wrong. Read it in community. Not just the community of your church, but in the community of people who've written about the Scriptures since the beginning of time and, and help, let it help you come to the knowledge of the truth. And then finally, in humility. In humility, I remember I was listening to a famous preacher who I won't name. Uh, this is years ago, and it was his radio show, and they they played one of his sermons. And then afterwards, his his host, his show host, came on, and he said, "Well, Doctor So and So, one of the things I really admire about you is I've been listening to your tapes for twenty years, and, and you've the things you were saying twenty years ago are the same as the things you're saying today. You you don't say anything different, anything new." And he said, well, you know, Chuck, that's just what happens when you do your homework. And I just wanted to puke. Because uh, first of all, show a little humility. But secondly, what you're really saying is, yeah, Chuck, I haven't learned anything new in 30 years. And, and don't get me wrong, the key doctrines of the faith, those don't change. And you need to stand your ground on those no matter what you hear from someone else. Some silky-tongued person may prevent, present an argument that sounds compelling, but you know the truth But on the other hand, there's so many things in Scripture where we don't know. I'll just give you an example. If you think that anybody who doesn't believe your specific uh, theory of the end times is going to hell or is wrong or is a fool, well, you need to get a little humility. Because you remember the first time Christ came, nobody was right about that either. There are so many things about God's Word where you may think you know the answers, but it still does you good to hear someone with a different viewpoint. To at least talk it through and say, well, what can I learn from this person? What, what do they see in the Scripture that I don't? As long as it's not infringing on one of the things that's crystal clear in Scripture, the key doctrines of the faith, listen and learn and, and grow in humility. Okay, so that's, we, should we take the Bible literally? Not exactly, but we should believe every word of it is true. We have ample reason to do that. Secondly, is the Bible outdated? So y'all know I, I quote Tim Keller a lot. He's one of my favorite preachers and authors and pastored many, many years in Manhattan, a really difficult place to be an evangelical preacher, but uh, had a very successful ministry. And he said, when he, f- he, he said he's always encountered people for the 30 years that he was there. People would come in and they would visit his church, usually invited by a Christian, but they would come up to him afterwards and he heard this a lot. I can't believe you people still take the Bible seriously. I didn't think anybody who was halfway educated, took this book seriously. And he said, years ago when he first came to New York, it was, well, don't you know the Bible is unscientific? Or, or don't you know the Bible is, uh, is not authentic? But nowadays, he said, it's different. They're, they're not worried about those questions as much as, I, don't, I can't believe you accept the Bible because don't you know how culturally, culturally regressive the Bible is? 
Don't you know it's pro-slavery and it's anti-woman and it's homophobic and it's hateful? And, and so he answers them. The thing I love about Tim Keller is he has a, a gentle way of speaking truth. So he, he gives them two responses. First of all, he says, most of what you just said is based on a misunderstanding of Scripture. The Bible doesn't say what you think it says. For instance, the Bible is not actually pro-slavery. Yes, you can pull a scripture out of context that says that tells slaves to obey their masters and to work hard for them, but you have to understand that slavery in the ancient world wasn't like slavery in this country. Slavery in the ancient world uh, was an economic thing, not a race-based thing. It was not for life. You could buy your way out of it. For a lot of slaves in the ancient world, it was, it was a safe harbor. It was, well, my family and I are going to starve. I think I'll go into slavery for a while until things get better, and then I'll buy my freedom and things will be fine. And so for uh, Paul and the other apostles to tell slaves to obey their masters is just like a preacher today saying to an average working woman or man, do a good job. Represent Christ well at work. Make your boss glad that you work there. That's your best way of witnessing. And here's, for another example, uh, they'll point to Ephesians 5 where it says, uh, husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. And they'll say, see, the Bible is, is anti-woman. It's misogynistic. It's telling men to, to abuse women and control them. And, but you need to read it. What does it actually say? I mean, that, that was a culture where that happened. That was most marriages. Men abused their wives, maybe not physically, but they did not see them as equal. Paul was telling husbands, Listen, you treat your wife the way Christ treated his church. He laid down his life for her. That passage is not giving men a privilege. It's giving them a responsibility. It's saying you should, you should sacrifice your own needs. You should, it should feel like death sometimes because you're putting her ahead of yourself because you are doing what you can to make her into what God created her to be. Her life is more important than yours. Does anybody think that's a man sitting on the throne in his home and getting everything he wants. Now, I know there are Christian men who think that's what it says and they live that way, but that's not what it actually says. I wish it didn't say that. My life would be easier. But that's what it says. It says, love your wives as Christ loved his church. So a lot of those ideas are based on a misunderstanding of Scripture. The second thing he says is, with respect, just because you disagree with something, it doesn't make it untrue. You may be offended by this, but it doesn't mean it's a lie. He, he talks about how every generation, our generation's no different. Every generation has its own arrogance, its own way of looking at the past and saying, well, I can't believe our grandparents used to do those kinds of things. Now we, we're not like that anymore. As if we've reached the fountain of knowledge, as if we're the most enlightened people who've ever lived and, and no one will ever be smarter. And it's really humbling to think that my great-grandchildren are going to look back at my generation and say, what were they thinking about something? We don't know what it is, but every culture has its own blind spots. He points out that if you took somebody uh, who, was, who lived a thousand years ago, who'd never heard the gospel before, and you explained Christianity to them, and when you got to the part where it says uh, Christ is going to return someday and he's going to judge everyone and those who've rebelled against God are going to go to hell and those who, uh, those who are his children will be in heaven, they would say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But when you got to the part where, yeah, those who follow Jesus are supposed to love their enemies and pray for those who hate them, the person from a thousand years ago would say, that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. That's, I don't want to live that way. Whereas if you did the same thing to someone today who didn't know Jesus, you taught 
all the gospel, all of the teachings of Scripture, they would hear about judgment and hell, and they'd think, that's barbaric. Who can believe that? But loving your enemy, they'd say, oh, yeah, that sounds very enlightened. The world would be a better place if we did that. And he says, who's right? Well, they both are, and they're both wrong. Don't you see every generation, there's something about the Bible. No matter who you are, no matter what your background, there's something in Scripture that kind of kicks you in the teeth. Something in Scripture you don't want to hear. And here's the thing. It's not a relationship if that other person can't disagree with you. You can't have a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a roommate or a friend or a coworker. if you say, okay, here's my stipulation, you can never tell me I'm wrong. Well, that relationship's not going to work. And we can't come to God and say, I'll believe in you and I'll follow you, but I'm going to reject anything you say that I don't like. So as Keller says, you have to accept the fact that God is God and you're not. And there are things in his word that are going to offend you just like they offend every one of us. Maybe the things that offend me aren't the same as the ones that offend you, but the fact that it offends you doesn't mean it's wrong. So the Bible is not outdated. Third question, how should we respond to people who reject the Bible's authority? So two scriptures for you. 1 Peter 3.15, you know this one. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. You know that verse because apologists are always quoting it because this is where the term apologetics comes from. When it says, be prepared to give an answer, that's the Greek word apologia, which means a defense. Be ready to defend the faith, in other words. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but they don't go on. They don't usually go on and talk about the next sentence. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, the second verse I want to show you is from Paul. That was from Peter. This is from Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, yet correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of of the truth. So in both passages that talk about dealing with people who disagree with you, and that could be people in the church who are trying to sow false doctrine, that could be people in the church who just disagree with the direction you're going as a, as a leader, but it also could be people out in the world who think that the gospel is untrue. In both instances, from both Peter and Paul, the two most prolific apostles, they both say, respond to them with gentleness with gentleness. And what's our tendency when we meet somebody who disagrees with us? We get mad. We get irritated. We project all kinds of evil motives on them. Oh, you're just, you just don't want to believe in the Bible because you want to be able to do whatever your evil desires tell you what to do. But we don't know that. We're projecting their, our thoughts onto them. Or we, we come up with these straw man arguments. You just think you're smarter than God, don't you? Well, he never said that. We're saying that for him. We're essentially acting like the rest of the world does when someone disagrees with them. We're insulting instead of persuading. That is the problem with our discourse today, whether it's political or any other realm, is we disagree, and instead of trying to persuade somebody else that our way is better, we just go straight to insulting. We think the, the person who can get, deliver the best zinger wins the argument. But I've never seen anybody get zinged into salvation. I just haven't. Gentleness and respect, treating them the way you wish they would treat you. And notice also the motive in both cases 
is their salvation, not winning the argument. It's that their heart might change. Again, I've never known anyone who was insulted into salvation, but I have known people who started out thinking that Scripture was ridiculous and all our beliefs were silly, but over time, because they met enough believers, it's usually not just one, they met enough believers who treated them with gentleness and respect and lived out their faith with authenticity and could articulate things in such a way that it was obvious they'd thought them through. Maybe, maybe they weren't PhDs, maybe they weren't trained apologists, but they had thought these things through. And over time, those people came to Christ, they came to salvation. And isn't that the goal of all of this? Why should we believe the Bible? Because it is the Word of God, and people need to know it. So let's pray. Lord, it's tempting uh, to regret the time we live in and, and wish we lived in a time when uh, all we had to do was say, here's what the Bible says, and most people would stand up and take notice, and at least would be brought to a point of making a decision. But Lord, we live in a time when that's not the case, when so many of the people we we speak scripture to just reject it out of hand. And yet, Lord, it does no good for us to feel sorry for ourselves. This is the time we live in. And in many ways, we have a great opportunity. Lord, this is like the world that Paul and the apostles lived in. So help us to think as they did and live as they did and to treat others with gentleness and respect. Uh, Lord, where we doubt, give us stronger faith. Help us to trust your word and to live according to it. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.